So uh, during the month of January, if you've been here, you know we've been walking through this series called Who We Are, which is really a look at who we are as the church. What does the Bible have to say about the church and our identity as the people of God? And that we've been articulating that by looking at the different metaphors, some of the different metaphors that the New Testament uses in regards to the church, and connecting those and really seeing how kind of some of our core values flow out of that identity. So the core values of being word-centered, uh, being radically dependent and generously loving and making disciples. All those things are important and they, and they flow from our identity. But today is a, is a special day and it's been a special day for about 40 years. The third or so uh, Sunday in January since the mid-80s has been recognized by many, especially churches, as the Sanctity of Life Sunday. And it's really a Sunday where we commemorate the 60 million or so uh, young lives who've been aborted legally within the United States since Roe versus Wade was uh, passed into law in 1973. And this year is the 49th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. And if you've been following the news, you know that there is a case before the Supreme Court, the oral arguments have already been made of Dodds versus some, somebody in, down south. And uh, this is a case that could perhaps possibly actually overturn uh, Roe v. Wade. And so there should be a, a, an opinion given by the Supreme Court here this year, hopefully uh, by June in that. And I would encourage you to pray for that. I would encourage you to pray along with many others um, that, that, would, that um, the ruling would go in the right way and that the Roe would be overturned. Now, will that get rid of abortion in the United States? No, it won't. Um, but there are many states within the nation who actually have trigger laws, and if Roe gets overturned, that those states would actually go to no abortion states, which is exciting. Um, but really, when we think about it, what could be closer to what we are, who we are as a church? What, what could be closer to our identity, especially if we're, we're supposed to be generously loving people, than to be upholders and protectors of life? And so in light of this, um, we're going to take a little bit of a detour today and, and focus on God and our bodies, not the body of Christ, which we'll look at next week, but God and our actual physical bodies. How does Jesus' incarnation, now I'll finish that question in just a second, let me explain incarnation real quick. Uh, what incarnation is, is kind of a big theological idea that we see in the Bible here in this even in this passage of uh, God, the second person of the Trinity, who's always been there, who is eternal, who created the world, becoming a person, becoming a human being in the womb of probably a, a young woman who was a teenager at the time and a virgin. God taking on a human body, becoming enfleshed, if you will. That's what incarnation means. So today what I want to look at is how Jesus' incarnation should profoundly influence how we think about the human body, about our bodies, about all bodies, about the bodies of human embryos and fetuses and babies, and how we should think about the sanctity of life. So I want to begin here with this idea of God and the body, and I want to articulate it this way, that what the incarnation means... What the fact that God became man means is that our bodies matter. 
I'm going to give you a little bit of a historical and, and philosophical overview of, of one of the most dangerous heresies that actually arose in the very early days of the church. And it's a heresy against which faithful Christians continue actually to battle today. And it's a, it's a heresy called Gnosticism. And as a, as a philosophy, Gnosticism was around before Christianity was around. It took many different shapes prior to becoming a Christian heresy. But when it was combined with Christianity, the Gnostics, as they were called, created a philosophy in which they basically taught that the physical world, the material world, was created by a demiurge, a lesser god. Not the supreme god, but a lesser god. And they identified this lesser god with the Yahweh of the Old Testament. And this demiurge was the, the source of creation, was the source of physical matter. And, and physical matter itself was, was considered to be corrupt or evil. And the supreme God, who wasn't this demiurge that created the material world, the, the supreme God was purely spiritual, non-personal, an entity that was pure and good. And because of its innate goodness, it was as far removed from the physical and material creation as you could get. So, so Gnosticism, in Gnosticism, spiritual is good and physical is bad. So, so salvation would come for Gnostics through secret knowledge. That's what the word Gnosis means. Gnosticism comes from that word. That, that some had secret knowledge and they could escape from the physical and material world through this secret knowledge. So the goal of human life was to, uh, to have our spiritual selves our true selves, our, our spiritual selves, be liberated from the physical, that is from the body. So the body is bad, the soul is good. Everybody got that? Philosophy 101 class, everybody's up on Gnosticism now. Uh, now, when you, when you listen to all that, you probably say, well, that sounds really strange. Who would buy into something like that? But in reality, Gnosticism is actually alive and well today in many forms, and I want to just give you three quick examples, and we'll start in the church. First, ask yourself real quickly what you believe about the resurrection, like the, like the actual details of the resurrection. What is going to happen at the resurrected? When you are resurrected, what will happen? Now, traditionally, Orthodox Christians have always held to a doctrine that's called the resurrection of the body. However, in popular Christian theology today, resurrection is often imagined as a purely spiritual reality, right? That we will be um, freed from our physical bodies, that we will be freed from these broken shells, that we, will, uh, that we will leave kind of the evils of this physical material world and we will go and be with God in heaven up there somewhere in this purely spiritual realm where we'll where we'll maybe float around as kind of these disembodied selves, maybe on clouds, maybe with harps, probably not, who knows, you know. So, and that's, that's kind of this idea that there's, there's not going to be a resurrection of the body because the body's bad. So the disembodiment of the soul, though, is a Gnostic idea. And, and if this is how you imagine eternity in heaven with God past the resurrection, then you might be a Gnostic. Anybody? <laughs> Any Gnostics out there? It's kind of like, you might be a redneck if, no. Okay. I know you're all rednecks, no. Um, 
A second illustration, which is more of a cultural illustration, you'll recognize this in the culture right now. It's the mantra that we hear all over pop culture. And funnily enough, we were watching a, a movie last night, and this totally got spoken in that movie. I was like, wow. And it's basically the idea that you should be true to yourself. You should listen to your heart. You can't go wrong. And what this has grown into over time is that the idea that our inner self, our psychological self, our unseen self, our immaterial self is the real me. And if that's the case, then the physical body I have is, is merely contingent. It's merely just kind of a meat suit. Right? It's just this physical thing that I have to deal with that's, that's not really part of me. I just happen to dwell in it. And if that's the case, then my, my physical body can be changed on a whim according to what my real self really feels or thinks, okay? Now, this is the Gnostic tendency that's actually behind ideologies such as transgenderism, transhumanism. Have you heard of transhumanism? That's the up-and-coming thing, right? Becoming more than human, perhaps, by changing our bodies. And the biological constraints of the body are ignored and made to kind of serve our psychological leaning. So I, I believe I'm this, so therefore I can make my body match that. And if our true selves are simply just trapped in our physical bodies, then the goal of a happy life is to give full expression to our true inner psychological selves. Okay, now the, the third illustration, or the third way that I see Gnosticism today is comes to came to full fruition really in the United States 49 years ago this month when the champions of a seemingly good idea that women should be able to choose women should be able to make choices about their own lives that is a good idea but taken to an extreme this good idea won legal status for abortion on demand in our country and so in that, the most vulnerable form of human life, embryos and fetuses in the womb, were deprived of human status and they were declared merely clumps of tissue. And what is a clump of tissue but something to be disposed of when it becomes inconvenient or when I perceive that it's impinging on my right to happiness or my own well-being? So... With those three examples, I hope that you can see that Gnosticism is alive and well, not just in the culture, but in the church, sometimes in our own beliefs as well. And surprisingly, we're all susceptible to it in one form or another, which is why this morning it's, it's important for us to begin really with the story of conception. So I want to move back from where Charlie read this morning and go back all the way to Luke chapter 1, verse 26. So if you are... If you have your Bibles open, open Luke chapter 1, starting at 26. If not, there's Bibles in the pew in front of you. Chapter 1 of Luke, verse 26. This is usually the story that we read before Christmas during Advent. And here's how it goes. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he, the angel, came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. 
He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, one ancient version of Gnosticism, which was popular in the early church, was called Docetism. And in Docetism, it was claimed that the man Jesus wasn't really a man at all. He was a phantasm or or a ghost. If you went to touch him, your hand probably would have gone through him kind of thing. In other words, his body, what, what, ha- what he had as a body, only seemed or appeared to be physical when in reality it wasn't. Now, why would they believe this? Well, if you think about Gnosticism, it's because a pure spiritual being like Christ could never take on the evil of human flesh. But as we read this story... As Luke conveys this story to us, as he tells the story of the Annunciation of Gabriel telling Mary that she was going to be with child, as the ancient creeds remind us, we see that the eternal Son of God became flesh and blood. He became a human being by being conceived by the Holy Spirit, by being born of the Virgin Mary, and by being named Jesus. So so the eternal God, of whom the angel could declare in verse 32, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. This eternal God chose embodiment. He chose to take on a true, real, fleshly existence, and he is no less for it. He didn't have to give up his godness to take on humanness. He took on full humanity and was still fully God. So becoming human didn't stain him. It didn't reduce him. It didn't un-God him. Rather, through the incarnation, Jesus Christ gives to humanity its truest and its fullest potential. By becoming human, he made humanity what humanity was intended to be. Okay, so the incarnation of Christ, Jesus becoming a man, is taking on a human body, proves to us the sanctity, the holiness, the importance of the human body, a physical human life. If God would take on a human body, that must say something about bodies that are created in his image. The very Son of God himself has taken on human flesh, to himself, and so from conception onward, the human body carries in it the sacred marks of the divine. So I would sum it up with this truth, that if the Son of God took on a real human body, then all human bodies are sacred and holy and must be treated as such. The second point I would make this morning is about God in control, and it's simply this. That the incarnation means that joyful, humble trust matters. 
especially in regards to our bodies. So in the second part of this narrative, in verses 39 to 45, we have another picture painted, which includes our response to what God does with our bodies. So look at verse 39 now. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now, I love this little story. I love this little story because it's, it's, I can taste it. I can smell it. I could, you can put yourself into this story and just feel and smell and taste the joy. So I'm going to talk about flavors here for a minute. This story has flavor to me. And the first flavor of this story is pure joy. So the baby in Elizabeth's womb, as soon as she hear, he hears Mary's voice, he leaps for joy. And then, and then Elizabeth herself is filled with the Holy Spirit, and she responds to what is happening with joy. So on the surface, we have these two very unlikely mothers, the meeting of two women who are miraculously expectant mothers. But beneath the surface, what you can't see, but what Luke tells us about, is we have the meeting of two unseen, yet ever so real human persons. Enwombed human persons. Unborn human persons. John the Baptist and Jesus of Nazareth. And without apology, the text treats these pre-born fetuses as fully human persons. They're able to respond to the physical stimuli like the sound of Mary's voice. John the Baptist is able, he's not the Baptist yet, by the way. He probably doesn't have a camel hair skin or anything like that. He's probably naked. Okay, so he can respond to this physical stimuli. He can, re- he can express emotion in the womb, like emotion like joy, and he can physically respond to something with emotion. He leaps in her womb. And there's not even one inkling for one moment that the not-yet-born John the Baptist is less human than the woman whose womb he is growing inside of. Or that he's less human than the people who will read this account like you and me. So the first flavor is joy. The second flavor of this narrative is a profound and appropriate humility. Verse 43 Elizabeth says, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She knows she doesn't deserve this. And humility is, I believe, the core virtue to those who would, for those who would follow and seek to please God. Humility recognizes that everything put into our lives, even the unexpected, even the unplanned, even the unwanted is a gift. Elizabeth recognizes that. Mary recognizes that in humility. And the third flavor of this story that I see is trust. Trust. So for both of these women, God has done something outside of their control, something completely miraculous. 
And in her humble and spirit-filled gratitude, Elizabeth prophetically extols Mary for her obedient trust. Verse 45, she says, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Remember that Mary was told by a strange and frightening heavenly being that she, a virgin, would become pregnant without ever having had sex. Now, most of us at best in that same circumstance would probably respond to this kind of announcement with something akin to, I'll believe that when I see it, right? Or, yeah, right. But Mary's response is trust. And that trust is key to this story, and it's key to our own discipleship as well. Because as humans, we want to control every single aspect of our lives, We want everything to be manageable, for us to have made the decision. And we have this desire for power and autonomy, and that is the very desire that drives the machinery of the abortion industry. Because conveniently, a great inconvenience, a so-called mistake, such as a pregnancy, can supposedly be erased in an afternoon with supposedly little or no side effects. And yet, if you've ever had an abortion, you know that the side effects are not little or absent. They're serious, and they go on for a long time. Now, consider in this story if Mary had leaned toward fear, or if she had leaned toward pride, or she leaned towards control in her response to the angelic announcement. What if Mary had told God, uh-uh, no way, not with my body, Or told him that he had no right to lay claim to her uterus and that she and she alone could lay claim over her body. And we might be prone in that moment as good Americans to go, you go, you go girl, go Mary, fight the power. But that's not what Mary did. She didn't respond or she she didn't respond with trust because of, of some overwhelming patriarchy or a naive slavishness to her cultural what she did was to submit to God's sovereign will to his purpose for her life and for her body even though it didn't make sense to her and even though it cost her the control of the rest of her life 33 years later she would watch that very baby be hung on a cross and die but a few days later guess what She got to watch him walking around with holes in his hands and in his side, the resurrected Lord. Her life was changed because she chose to trust. She said, behold, in verse 38, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. But a Gnostic culture, a culture which calls death life and calls life death, a culture that supports and fuels an industry that kills millions, is a culture that's inundated with fear instead of joy. It's a culture that's overwhelmed with pride instead of humility. It's a culture that runs on control over trust. But Mary and Elizabeth call us to something higher. They They call us to joy and humility and trust. And if the Son of God, consider this truth if you will, 
If the Son of God took on a real human body through the agency of a joyful, humble, trusting young woman, then we too must give God control even over our bodies for the sake of life, even when it doesn't make sense. All right, the third and final piece of this story this morning has to do with God and power. Cash it out in this way, that the incarnation means that the vulnerable matter. The incarnation means that the vulnerable matter. So the, the final piece of this text is a song or a prayer spoken by Mary. It's traditionally called the Magnificat. And in this prayer, Mary magnifies God for what he has done and what he is doing. And specifically, she points out in this prayer several times that God is in the business of choosing the humble and the poor and the vulnerable and the weak and using them to silence and humble the boastful and the powerful. We find this prayer in Luke 1, 46 to 55, but I'm just going to read the last half of verse 51 through verse 53 where it says that God has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has Brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Now in the the first few chapters of the Gospel of Luke, which tell the kind of familiar Christmas story, these, these chapters are surely populated with powerful people, important people. If you look back to chapter 1, verse 5, we meet King Herod. King Herod was one of the most powerful men of his time. According to the Gospel of Matthew, Herod himself slaughtered a bunch of innocent children when his power and his control were threatened. If you you look forward to chapter 2, verse 1, we read of Caesar Augustus, who was the most powerful man in the world at the time. So we have Herod, we have Caesar, but interestingly, these these infamous and distinguished men of renown are not the centerpieces of the story. They're not the main characters of the greatest story that's ever been told. The only reason that Luke even mentions them is to situate the story in its historical context, to tell us when and where it happened. That's all he needed them for. And then he focuses on the real important characters, the centerpieces who are weak and humble and vulnerable, two unknown peasant women and their two unborn children. One was too old to have children, yet she was pregnant. One was too young and too unmarried to have children, and yet she was pregnant. These, though not powerful, Though not well known, these are the ones who are ready and prepared to respond to God in humble trust and to be used by him to utter spirit-inspired prophecy. Both of them prophesy in in this chapter. And they are used to carry in their wombs and later at their breasts two of the most important humans to ever be born on planet Earth. So God uses the humble to oppose and overturn the proud. God favors the weak and the oppressed. Mary's prayer emphasizes that God cares for and prioritizes the vulnerable. 
And throughout Scripture, we find this reality that that by God's power, weakness will overtake strength. The last will be first. God will overturn the power structures of the world and put them on their heads, and the vulnerable will not be vulnerable forever because they have an all-powerful advocate. And so we read in Psalm 8, verse 2, Out of the mouth of babies and infants... You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and avenger. So where does God go when he needs an army to overcome his enemies? Babies and children. He goes to the weak, the, the vulnerable, the needy. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 to 29. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And then Jesus himself in Matthew 11 says, At that time he declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So here's the truth. That if the Son of God took on a real human body, then it means that he is in the business of humbling pride and exalting that which is poor and weak and vulnerable, including the unborn. So my prayer for us today is that we may be those who, knowing and following an incarnate Lord, would realize that bodies matter, that we would realize that human life is sacred. May we, who worship an embodied God, learn to relinquish our fear and our pride and our control and walk in joy, humility, and trust. And finally, may we who follow a humble and suffering Savior readily find ourselves on the side of the poor, on the side of the weak, on the side of the vulnerable, especially those who cannot speak for themselves. Would you pray with me? Our good and gracious Father, we come to you Humbly, joyfully, trustingly, knowing that these bodies you have given to us as a gift. You haven't even told us, who, those of us who have put our faith in Christ and follow you, that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And we are to honor God with our bodies. And so it's our desire today, Lord, that you would be honored in our body. That you would be honored in our response to you of joyful and humble trust. And that you would be honored as we take our place next to you, advocating for the poor and the needy and the weak, the vulnerable and the unborn. And God, we do lift up a prayer this morning. We bring to you the Dodds case that's before the Supreme Court. And I know they're deliberating and researching on it now. And God, we pray uh, for a decision on that that would overturn 50 years of abortion legalized in this country that would overturn that and, and, and kind of turn the tables, Lord. We, we pray for a movement of life in this country. God, we pray that you would protect us from 
um, not caring for the human body in whatever way, shape, or form. You would protect us from, from Gnosticism and really help us to know and love and obey you in our bodies. So God, would you use us, would you do your work in us and through us and in this, in this city, in this community, in this country, and in this world, through our bodies, would you be glorified in your name. Amen.